1,000 Better Stories. Welcome to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine a better and fairer future beyond the new normal and transform what we think is possible. Hello, it's Kashka, one of your story weavers. I welcome you to another crossover episode between our 1000 Better Stories blog and our podcast. Today, Joanna Avilori interviews one of the mini grant funded contributors to the blog, poet Joe Gilbert. As usual, you can find all the relevant links in the episode notes. We open with an excerpt from Joe's poem, read by Joe in beautiful Doric. They will close the episode with an English version of it. Enjoy! Curiosity curbed by curbs, concrete and cement, tarred our earth, cut back connections, separate soul for sure, soil for skin, seal spirits and screens that lay about if it's happening. Demonise opening air, dangers lurk out there, murder, wither, robbers, fraudsters, fakers, haters, kill invaders, baby, beastie, winged or legged. A thing outside unplasticised polyvinyl chloride doors must die. Just watch nature fee inside. Yon all white man will show you the great outdoors. A party where bard fee. Hi everyone and welcome to A Thousand Better Stories podcast. My name is Joanna Villori. I'm Scan's Storyweaver together with Casca Hempel and today I'm going to be interviewing poet Joe Gilbert to talk about well the poem that she is um, publishing in our blog A Thousand Better Stories called No Nature to Nurture. I'm going to actually refer to the to the notes that I made when I heard Joe for the first time, and this was on the 22nd of November last year. So I went to this session at the Scottish Parliament here in Edinburgh called Poetry in Parliament. Um, so yeah, I had just arrived from Portugal that day, but I still wanted to go. So very tired with my suitcase, I went. And Joe's poetry was my absolute favorite from the night and I made you know a few, a few notes if we want people to care about things then there must be a sense of belonging that was the first thing that I wrote and then that was a very powerful statement that was about being excluded from the gates of nature I thought it would be quite good to bring Joe to talk on the podcast and to have her writing her amazing writing which is powerful and moving and also funny, which is something that you don't get when writing about climate change. I don't get funny stuff. <laughs> and and her poetry also made me laugh. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. <clears throat> High praise indeed. <laughs> My favorite uh, segment of the poem is precisely this, just watch nature from inside the BBC and that old white man will show you the great outdoors, a party you're barred from. Like I thought this was very powerful and it, well it, it really highlights one's privilege when you realize something they've taken for granted that you can appreciate nature you have time and you have space 
to appreciate nature. I live here in Edinburgh, which is a which is a beautiful city. I'm very grateful to to be able to to live here, to afford living here. So I'm I'm uh, going to have a baby in a few weeks. Um, and thinking there are so many places where I've been before, where I lived or where I visited, where you have to to walk for a great distance or even taking a couple of buses to go to a park or to go to what even resembles a forest. And you're just not going to do that with a small baby. And that definitely bars you from the party, bars you from from caring because you, you just don't see it. Could you tell us a little bit about your story? What drove you to write poetry? What did you want to write about at the start? And how did you then start writing about climate change, which is something that you've done quite recently? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> there's not a really a, a kind of really short version of this. Um, so I, I always say that poetry found me. Poetry found me and literally saved my life. And I know that sounds like um, quite twee, but it is the truth. Um, I went back to university in a time of really deep grief. Um, I'd lost my partner. I had moved back up from Glasgow um, and was sleeping on my mum's living room floor. (laughs) Um, And I was feeling quite sorry for myself and and, um, not really knowing what to do with my life. You know, I was nearly 40 um, and, you know, I'd kind of, finished uni, hadn't got a job in Glasgow, came home and I'd worked in PR and marketing because that's what my first degree was in. But really what I wanted to be doing was a writer. And so I kind of worked in all these um, project management for arts organisations and PR and marketing for arts organisations in third sector. Um, But really what I wanted to be doing was writing the plays that were on the stage, not marketing them. But I didn't have the courage at that point and and probably wasn't ready to make that leap of faith um, into another journey. And I had tried to do a, a master's up in Aberdeen working in self-funding, which don't do it <laughs> because it was a ridiculously insane idea. And I ended up dropping out after the first semester. Like I just, I loved the time there, but it just wasn't feasible working and trying to study at the same time. Yeah. And then there was funding that came up for a course in Dundee. And so I'd kind of settled a wee bit in, in Aberdeen and, and I didn't want to move. So even though there were options for Edinburgh and Glasgow, I didn't want to move and certainly not just for a year and then have to kind of start all over again. So I decided to do Dundee and I commuted. Um, so that was basically what I spent the majority of my student loans. So I was still working, but just part time. So I had enough to cover rent and things. And I got up at ridiculous times in the morning to get the train to Dundee um, for nine o'clock. And I loved every minute of it. And so they introduced me to things and writers that I wouldn't have chosen to explore. And one of the revelations that came out of that course was that I could write the way that I speak. And I was like, eh. like, I didn't understand that you were allowed to do that because of my whole life, I had half my family who are not from the country telling me, you know, it's not fit, it's what and correcting me. And then the other half of my family speaking to me in broad Doric, but it was only acceptable to do that in certain spaces. I didn't realize that you were allowed to write and, and make art in it. Um, so that kind of took me into the spoken word thing and then spoken word took me into poetry and i'd always had 
a d intense dislike of nature and poetry. I used to say hatred, but I didn't really hate it. I just could, I couldn't get my head around it. I was like another poem about bloody birds. You know, I just, I didn't get it because that had never been a part of my life. And so I didn't understand what the, the kind of big deal was um, until I was in this workshop and people were talking about, you know, different classes and, and being able-bodied and how people who aren't privileged or able-bodied have greater barriers to access in nature than other people. And the whole kind of workshop was around discussing this. And it was like a light bulb moment went off my head. And I'm like, that's what it is. I don't feel like that's my world <laughs> and therefore I can't write about it, you know. Um, and it really kind of set me thinking. Um, and so that poem that, that I'm publishing in the blog kind of came out of that workshop and I'm making little forays into exploring other ideas and, and I suppose having the courage to write about things as I see them. Um, yeah. You know, I'm always kind of getting caught up in what I think you should be writing about or how that particular thing should be written about because there's, you know, bodies. I mean, there's how many poems about birds? What do I know about birds? But I kind of got a piece of advice really early on in my studying and my tutor had said to me, you know, 20 people can write a poem about that chair, but only you will write your poem about that chair. And so I need to keep remembering that and that, you know, when I'm writing that particular poem, I'm not speaking from every single working class perspective that ever existed in the world, because that might not be some people's experience, but it is mine. And by writing about mine, maybe other people will identify or it might start off a conversation and say, well, it wasn't like that for me, but this is what I did. You know, in that solutions rather than just, you know, getting caught up in the negative and well this is the way it's always been therefore that's not necessarily true these conversations can generate information sharing and problem solving and a whole range of voices that can kind of share their own experience to come together with something that can be then turned into action or that's the way that i see it anyway i really like what you said there you know about starting a conversation is not necessarily about agreeing because when I heard your poetry, I was like, it was not like this for me, but I know some people that this was like for them and even members of my family um, and and places where I've been that I thought, if I lived here, how would my life be? And would I be able to access these spaces and to care about the things that I care? And thinking like that, caring about climate change and doing work on climate change, even though it's something that brings me sadness and grief, of course, because it's something I wish I didn't have to do it. But at the same time, it is a privilege to be able to even think about it. What is, in your opinion, the power of poetry in creating, in this case, a specific like awareness um, and engagement with climate action, understanding this as, as action that people can take and awareness that people have about the state of the world, the state of their communities, and what they can do to improve their lives. How do you think that the power of poetry can create awareness and engagement with both climate change and other social issues in the communities that are associated with the crisis? 
Um, I think, again, by having that range of diverse voices and experiences, you know, like for me, poetry is a very emotive thing, but a lot of that emotion comes from my connectedness to it. Um, and so I think the better range and depth of voices possible I'm I'm I don't know if it's because of my kind of background or if it's just a personality trait but I don't like being told what to do <laughs> and when I was little my dad used to do this reverse psychology thing on me like tell me to go and stick my fingers in the hole in the wall and here here's a knife go and stick that knife in there and switch it on and if he'd said that I wouldn't do it but if he told me not to, I would have gone and done it kind of thing. And I think that sometimes when you're trying to get people to take action, especially in that kind of context, it can come across as a bit preachy a little bit of the time. Um, and I think that there's a lot of things that in terms of working class people are already doing that they don't actually realize you know for example we didn't have a car the whole time when i was growing up and i hadn't been on a plane until i was 30 years old so those things are huge you know kind of um factors that that contribute to your carbon footprint so i think a lot of things that people are already not doing is probably not seen as doing something Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think that that would be a really good place to start. So, you know, if you're already doing these things, you know, and, and kind of make a list of things that maybe people are already doing without realizing it. Um, and then saying, you know, if you if you care enough about these issues and blah, 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 and you feel like you want to do more, then you can also do this. So it's not just a whole checklist of things. You know, I think for me, when I was in that situation, you know, I was working four jobs, I was trying to study, I had no time, I was sitting greeting, answering emails at three o'clock in the morning, like, why oh. am I doing this to myself? And I still, at the end of all that, didn't have enough to pay my bills, you know, and, and I'm not saying for a second that I'm in the worst kind of situation, because I'm not, but I understand how being in that situation makes you feel where you're working basically knocking your pan in and it's not even covering what you need to go out and then you've got somebody posh <laughs> coming and telling you oh well you need to do this and that and it's you know it's swear words which usually meet that kind of the last thing when you've got a never-ending to-do list of things that you will never get checked off and it feels like you will never get it checked off is another list of things that's going to make your life more difficult or you can't afford, which is the other part of it. Um, you know, you kind of see things online about, oh, look, it's so simple. There's this meal and, you know, buy the juice noodles and this the chicken and this. Da, da, da. It's like, I, but where are you getting the money to shell out for all the herbs and spices to start off with? Because you're talking to guts of 70 quid before you even start for that. Where's that 70 quid coming from? You know, you're not counting them at electric it takes to cook it and blah 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 so there's all these kind of things and i think you know it starting small is always a, a good approach and also acknowledging the things that people are already doing um mm. so yeah i don't know <laughs> i think i just went a bit soapbox there but um yeah i think that does make a difference yeah. and i think you know the the 
most that I'm engaged when, with poetry is when it's real and it applies to me. You know, I can appreciate now um, because I've studied it and, and, you know, I want to read more widely and things, you know, all this beautiful flowery language and, and um, stunning descriptions of things. But some of those things are things that I'm never going to see <laughs> and have yep. never experienced myself. And so, you know, I, I don't know, starting local is, is probably where I've gone because it's the stuff that is closest to me. And so I've been doing like little reckeys where I'll go and just sit in Duthie Park or, you know, somewhere kind of local, some kind of green space. I did that a little bit in lockdown where mm -hmm. I would just write what I see, um, you know, and, and kind of start there before you sort of push out to um, national and global. And I mean, I know the issue is that, but sometimes you kind of need to start small before yeah. you can kind of mushroom out to the yeah. big big picture yeah. and I also think that tangible things you know are, are kind of more powerful they do have that impact and and kind of I suppose one of the things in the past year or so is the the um what's the word I'm looking for just the absurdity I think in the weather Absolutely. you know yeah. I mean this morning for example it's like you know 60 mile an hour winds there's loads of places in the Shire with trees gone down. I mean, they've been battered, you know, this kind of winter by storms. And then the flip side of that is there was one night I was out in, in November just before Christmas and it was 17 degrees at night. Yes. <laughs> and yes, this I remember. It was like a Monday. You know? Yeah. Like that's, was not, also... that's not usual or typical weather. It's becoming something, you know, real even here. And I mean, I know there's much kind of worse effects going on globally but people local people are starting to sit up and take notice and they're like right okay this is not made up this is not you know something that people have got nothing to worry about in their lives have yeah. made up because I think there was a little bit and this is why there's so much climate deniers you know it's either yeah. because they, they they don't believe it because they can't see it happening there um, or yeah. it's against their business interests, which yes, it's again, or impa yeah. it impacts their lives. Like the policies start mm -hmm. to impact their life before they see a direct impact of climate yeah. change, and I think that can also be a bit complicated. Like you see, for example, these policies now to control car pollution with the ULES zones, and this is something that I've been uh, witnessing and talked to some people, you know, who know that I work with community climate action and. My friends will kind of question this to me. They're like, I need to go to work. I cannot afford to take the bus or the train every day. That's not actually feasible to me. I need to take my car and I cannot afford one of those cars. We sometimes are in a bit of a silo when we are talking about these things um, in in policy uh, without seeing how it actually impacts the lives of people. But just this idea that a few folk would be like, oh, now I'm priced of having a car. How am I going to go to work? So going back to the poetry, what has been generally the response from, from your audiences to these new themes in your work? And is there any particular story of a reaction or conversation that sparked from there that you would like to tell us? Um, well, I think the whole poetry in Parliament thing, um, I think people that know my work <laughs> would have been the last thing that they would have expected me to be doing was you know an event about climate change because previously i mean i have got poems about nature but 
and you know things that have been included but it's not the main body of my work and i think there are other um poets and writers who've been doing this kind of thing much longer um so i was just as surprised i think as everybody else that i was included in that lineup but it's it's kind of come from those workshops and that conversation and and being able to offer a a different perspective i suppose um and like we kind of you know touched on before when we have these different conversations and different people share their different experiences it can only benefit you know the the kind of discussion that you're having because i think sometimes that if it's a particular issue things tend to be in silos depending on your beliefs and that's really limiting and restricting and and what happens in those situations is that it just keeps going round and round in this circle of madness talking 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 and nothing ever gets done because there are no different voices to change it i think it's really important um to have all these different perspectives and have all these different conversations um you know when i was listening to people reading in that workshop it was another revelation to me, you know, part of my kind of own development. And because, you know, I'm focusing that on more of my work, I'm being more aware of things that I'm doing at home and, you know, trying to go to refilleries and buying, you know, less plastic and all of these kind of little changes, I think, make you feel like you're doing something because the more I look into it, the more um kind of depressing it gets you know and i've been to various events and things and you know had discussions over the years and and i think sometimes it just feels like we're banging our heads off a brick wall and that it yeah. doesn't matter what we do nothing's going to change it you know we're set on this course and the experts are saying blah 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 and i think there's so much disinformation out there as well you know like i'm certainly not an expert on on the topic of climate change um, I know there are things that I do that make me feel like I'm making a wee bit difference and that can kind of, you know, lift the sort of doom perspective. Um, but I think we also need to be a little bit lighthearted, although, you know, some of the consequences are absolutely not and there are parts of the issue and discussion that need to be taken seriously. I think there needs to be a little bit brevity as well yeah. to kind of push it out of that negative because um, a lot of people use that as an excuse not to do anything oh well we're all fucked anyway so what's the point you know and kind of pushing that blame why are they trying to push it back on ordinary people when it's big businesses that need to be doing x y and z and you know it's it's not there's no cut and dry solutions here um but i think that having that you know for me using that wee bit humor in things just helps to lighten lighten all of that a wee bit um, and maybe kind of push forward into the more positive solutions focused kind of way of things. I don't know. I agree. A big part of my hope relies on that, uh, you know, as um, as a writer and a reader as well. Um, and yeah, and thinking, you know, thinking a lot, you know, about also what am I going to tell my child, you know, because they're going to grow up and as I do my PhD on eco-anxiety and all these things, they're just gonna grow up around me talking about this stuff all the time because I work from home and I have you know just like I'm interviewing you now if I was doing this like in a year my child might be just next to me there playing doing something and they would be listening to this so yeah 
like the the way that I speak to this and the kind of things I show them, especially during these first years of life where they're not at school yet. Um, I, I want to be to be really honest with that. And and as a, as a fiction writer, that is a bit of a problem sometimes. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely food for thought for for me how to how to be how to be honest. Uh, whilst of course protecting in this case a, a child and so um well talking about you know inspiration could you tell us someone that has inspired you lately um so i i definitely think the person that led uh, that workshop that we we're chatting about um katie ailes mm-hmm. uh, who is part of loud poets was kind of part of my journey but i've always had despite my hatred of nature poetry, I've always really admired that there's a kind of way of writing about things that are beautiful. And, you know, you can see, even though you haven't been to that place, I think you know, yeah. the best writing is this, the, the kind of writing that can make you picture it in your mind, even though you haven't been there yourself. Um, and so I kind of really admire um, Jen Hadfield, who's a kind of English uh, poet, now living in Scotland, she lives in Shetland. Um, and I've always loved her really beautiful descriptions of very simple things. Like, you know, she kind of transforms them in your mind. And and one of her poems talks about this boat that's kind of rotting outside, which I think she ended up turning into a, a, a um, thing for growing plants and it was called the plinky boat because it was all kind of broken up like this yeah. old piano and that's what they call it. and I just thought that was such a great you know because you can imagine it you know just by that few simple words the plinky boat and I thought yeah this is brilliant um, and although I, I don't understand it like in here I can get it in here you know um, and so I really admire a lot of her writing and Pascal Petit as well um, I was supposed to be going to Moniac Moor um, to do a workshop, but then COVID wrecked all of that and it was put off and put off and then I ended up going to something else yeah. and it still hasn't happened yet. So I'm kind of um, glad that I did swap it for something else. But yeah, um, just the way that they write, I, I just think is stunning. Um, Alicia Pirahamed, uh, you know, who was at the... Um, poetry in Parliament thing, Kathleen Jamie, you know, there's tons. Uh, Katrina Naomi, who who's also a kind of another sort of, um, you would almost say eco-poet, but she writes a lot about nature and environment. And I always admire people. Um, I would have said previously, I would have called them proper writers. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to be able to write like them, but there are tons of writers that I would love to be able to write like, but why would you be able to write like somebody else? you know, because it's not your voice. And and I suppose I've kind of come to learn to kind of trust my own voice in things, but I've still got great admiration um, for those writers and, and to learn from them and and, uh, and aspire to be a better writer myself, I suppose. So just one last question. What do you think that we can do or that we can do more of um, when we want to amplify different Scottish voices? And this is something we want to do with A Thousand Better Stories the podcast and the blog through SCAN. We want to reach folk who are often excluded from the conversation. I think, I mean, most writers, if you're talking about writers, love a workshop. (laughs) And, you know, I know some of my own people, uh, you know, Zoom has opened up whole new worlds for them. And I think 
that became really apparent in lockdown as well. Like my day job, we kind of work with people that are in wards for extended periods of time. And, you know, we'd kind of connected with all these community groups. And usually if those events and and arty things were face to face, they wouldn't be able to go because of access issues or carers or, you know, there's a whole kind of myriad of things. And so that having that access to online things um, has was a total lifeline for them. So in some ways, their quality of lives improved by everything being online. And I think there was, was and still is a little bit of fear that there's not going to be that same provision. I mean, I know some kind of arts organisations and things have kept online access, um, especially festivals and things, which is brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's definitely something to consider for people that can't physically be there. Um, and then also the majority of big cities and things just weren't built for accessibility. I mean, I know there there's improvements and, you know, venues and places are doing things, but especially in poetry, because there's no money, you know, I mean, I've done gigs in Edinburgh and it's up three flights of mad stairs that yeah. you just, you know, if you were a disabled person and you, you wouldn't just wouldn't be able to go, you know, um, being quite portly, I struggle to get to the top of some of oh, these yeah, buildings, absolutely. you know, yeah. if there's I mean, no lift or any of that, I mean, I'm not claiming to yeah. be disabled, but, you know, it's, it's just not feasible for them yeah. to go and, and so there's all these, I suppose, identifying the spaces where people are missing out and the circumstances, um, you know, providing places um, that are free or subsidised, um, which I know a lot of organisations are starting to do, but there should be standard, I think. It should become like, a, you know, a, a bottom line that there's this many spaces for people or we're going to do this online as well. So for accessibility reasons or, um, you know, it's always about money. I know a lot of the time, you know, giving people money so they can hire spaces that are accessible for people. And and the most important for, you know, me and kind of working class people is paying people for their time as well. Yeah. Um, or at least providing some kind of incentive that is going to benefit them. Um, you know, because if you're knackered <laughs> and you're not getting anything out of it, then you're not going to bother, you know. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes maybe there needs to be a little thought about that as well. The workshops and the skill shares and training that we run at SCAN, we have been, you know, thinking about how we can make them more accessible. There's always free tickets available. We've been thinking how we can make it more accessible and um, and pay for caring costs as well, for example, which I've found uh, in writers' workshops, that sometimes it's a barrier because a lot of people are like, "Okay, I'm not going to go to this workshop because I can't. I'm caring for a parent or spouse or children, and I cannot pay for for the care, so I can't go at this time. And if you pay them for the care for that day, then they can come. Yeah. And and you're bringing a unique perspective for someone that would never be in the room. We're definitely going to to keep thinking and embedding this in in what we offer as Scan to bring yeah more more people to our workshops. I wanted to thank you again so much for making the time to come here for your contribution to A Thousand Better Stories, both the podcast and the blog. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming. Thank you for having me. Okay. 
So No Nature to Nurture, the poem by Jill Gilbert will be published in April in our blog, A Thousand Better Stories. So keep keep an eye out for it. Our mini grant, so our program of mini grants that uh, supported the um, the translation and reflection of this poem and this interview uh, are hopefully going to open up soon. So keep an eye out for that. Keep checking our website. And if you have any ideas, send us an email and we will get back to you on that. And also come to our workshops, tell us your ideas, propose things. We're, we're doing this together. So yeah. Curiosity curbed by curbs, concrete and cement tarred over earth, cut back connections, separate soul from shore, soil from skin, seal spirits and screens that lie about what's happening. Demonize open air, dangers lurk out there, murder, weather, robbers, fraudsters, fakers, haters, kill all invaders, be they furry, winged or legged. Anything outside unplasticized polyvinyl chloride doors must die. Just watch nature from inside. The BBC and that old white man will show you the great outdoors, a party you're barred from. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe even a review. It will really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. Or maybe you would like to join our brand new Storyteller Collective. You can drop our Story Weavers a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. To keep up to date, check out our website at scottishcommunitiesorguk or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Or simply sign up to the newsletter. Thank you.